to meditation. I'm just doing a relaxed scan of the body. Starting with bringing your attention to the forehead. smooth and relaxed. The eyes like they're turning up in a smile. Like the eyes are just floating in the sockets, no tension there. Relaxing all the way to the root of the tongue. The jaw softens, the mouth turns up in a small smile. Tension and then the shoulders just melting. The 
curve of a smile across the chest. sensations in the top of the hands and the back of the hands. Your belly softening. Curve of a smile across the belly. space of the pelvic floor. Just rest in this calm, open spaciousness, aware just of the gentle rhythm of the breath. Each time you feel any part of the physical body tightening or your awareness grabbing onto something, just relaxing again. swooping the body again, seeing if there's tension in the jaw and the forehead or the shoulders. Maybe tension in the quality of your focus and letting that go.
and bring your mind really clear and present for the last few moments gone anywhere else clear, firm attention that you can release and dedication starting to move when you're ready. I always wanted to dye my hair pink, like um, Gwen Stefani when she had her hair really pink. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking about it because Valentine's Day is tomorrow. Are you going to dye your hair pink for Valentine's Day? No, but I was thinking that when I get, like when I'm retired, when I'm older, maybe I'll do it then because my hair will probably be gray, so it's like, it won't be like stripping it and dyeing it. Yeah, I love the pink. I think she had like, she had bright pink, didn't mm -hmm. she? Or was it like a paler? I can't remember. I don't recall. I remember being pink. Oh, that was so long ago. Okay. Welcome back. We are on week six. Um, perfecting generosity, becoming a bodhisattva. And it's Wednesday, February 13th, and this class is on taking joy. Mm -hmm. Does that sound great? Mm -hmm. um, okay, you guys ready for quiz time? Mm -hmm. Okay, what is the name of the root text that we're studying in Tibetan? Chanchub Sempe Chupa La Jukpa. It's kind of a mouthful. Yeah, it does. Chupa La Jukpa. And then what is it in Sanskrit? Bodhisattva Charya Avatara. Mm -hmm. Bodhisattva Charya Avatara. And who was the author? Master and then the commentary is by who? Gyaltsen J. Yep. Dharma Rinchen. Yep. <laughs> Gyaltsen J. Dharma Rinchen is, is his full monk's name. Mm -hmm. And then I think this one's kind of hard, the Tibetan for the commentary. Mm -hmm. It's Gyaltsen Juknok. Gyaltsen Juknok. I know because it's like three 
three little sounds for like a freaking long title. Uh, yeah, it is. Entry point for children of the victorious Buddhas. <laughs> and it doesn't, yeah, some Tibetan to me just seems like Jung Chup Senpei Chupa La Chupa. That like just like goes. And then Gyalse Jupnok is just like, it's just such different sounds. Um, an entry point for children of victorious Buddhas is the code word for bodhisattvas. Okay, so, so far, we've gone through getting rid of obstacles in your mind to get bodhicitta, purifying bad karmas, and we talked about prostrating, offering refuge. Those were preliminary. And secondly, we went through practices to grow good energy. Rejoicing, asking Dharma teachers to stay. Hi, Cheryl. Hi. Did you think you were in time? Yeah. <laughs> You're here now. Yep. <laughs> and this, and it, like we talked about last week, it's basically the same thing when we're doing our meditation preliminaries. Did you think it started at 7? Or did you think it was... Yeah. Six twenty. I was usually I'm like going to things at seven o'clock. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I was excited to do a meditation. Oh. <laughs> Maybe we'll have time. We'll do another one. <laughs> um. And for the like the meditation preliminaries, if you're practicing Ganon Lagyama. Um, I don't, you don't know that practice, do you? Do you know about the Gamut? You do, right? Jason Papa practiced the oh, whole the yoga? visualization and the meditation. Do yeah. some people call it guru yoga? I don't know if the Gamut is guru yoga because I know that. It's like this whole text where you do, you, you do mantras with it and like, he comes down from the sky. And mm, yeah, on like snowy lines. Yeah. Like yeah. Whoa. Yeah. From, <laughs> from Elaine, right? Yeah. She called it Guru Yoga. Mm. Maybe, that, maybe it's called that too. Um, so that has all of those steps that, we, that we've gone over in it as well. They're all mm-hmm. built in. And all those steps are important, the, the warm-up to meditation. And it sets, it sets us up for success in meditation. And so you'll see a lot of people being really excited about meditation at first, but then they're not seeing any progress because they're not doing all the steps that are needed. Mm-hmm. And this is what... Um, this is what Geshe Michael thinks this is where most Americans go wrong, is not doing all like the preliminaries to meditation and setting everything up correctly beforehand. And we can get we can get to all of the goals of the practice. We just have to do the practice. And meditation is a necessary part of it. That's where you get from one path to the next as you're traveling through your spiritual life. And it's not it's not impossible to do and it's not super easy either. 
So success or unsuccess in meditation depends on the warm-up and whether you do the preliminaries properly. So you also want to go through them in a very steady pace so you don't space out on one and end up being there like for a really long time like on prostrations and then you smash everything else into a few minutes. So what are the... Um, what are the seven steps that we're talking about? Who knows? What's the first one? Um, the seven preliminaries. Prostration. Yep, it's like a combo, prostration, refuge, bodhicitta. And then after prostrations. Make offerings. Offerings. And then. Um, purification. Yep. After that, cleansing, and then... Um, rejoicing and good deeds. Mm-hmm. And then next one? Asking your teacher to stay. Asking him to stay and teach. And, and then, last one, always. Dedication. Yep. So those are all the steps. And those are... Um, I think, I'm pretty sure there's a recording online... A lot of different teachers have taught it and led it, but I think there's one that I did that's um, just those seven steps that are on our website. It was at there a certain point. I haven't checked in a while. So doing all those, they set up your mind for meditation, and as you're doing them more and more, you can start to feel that, and it, it kind of... Also, I think you get, you're habituating your mind to know, like, okay, we're meditating now by doing, you know, like, you go in, light candles, you light incense, you make offerings, whatever you do, you do your prostrations, and then you sit down and do your meditation and do the seven preliminaries, which I always get confused because I've heard them called different things, so I call them all different things, but they're the ones we just listed, um... And then it's like you're all set. You're like held in this container and it creates the space for you to meditate. So it's important to do those with your meditation. And they don't have to be really long either. You can spread it out a lot if you want, but it can be done really quickly if, if your meditation's shorter. Okay. So far... We've described three steps that must be taken to successfully develop bodhicitta. The first one, doing three preliminaries prior to purifying negative mental imprints. The second, purifying the negative mental imprints, which are obstacles to gaining bodhicitta with the four forces. And the third, collecting the positive energy needed to gain bodhicitta through the five practices. So we've talked about how to get real bodhicitta, which is really, really rare. And then the next step after you get real bodhicitta is to take the bodhisattva vows. And there's two different kinds, the bodhisattva vows for aspiring and then engaging bodhicitta. Then after that is another step, which is what we're talking about tonight. Traditionally, there are two bodhi. Chitta ceremonies or bodhisattva ceremonies. 
The second ceremony is to commit yourself to engaging bodhicitta or acting like a bodhisattva, and the first is to try to get it in the form of a prayer. So I wish I could have bodhicitta, and I commit myself to try to think like a bodhisattva. So in the time of Master Nagarjuna, it was custom to have the two ceremonies. I'm not sure if anybody does two ceremonies. I don't ever hear of anybody doing vow ceremonies, period, but maybe they are, you know, it's just not like a publicized thing. I don't know. But I know in our lineage, we don't do two. We do one. Okay. So, this is what the initial ceremony includes. Number one is purifying obstacles. Number two, collecting positive energy. Number three, the ceremony to get the wish. And number four, taking joy after the ceremony occurs. Did I that up? Oh yeah, okay. And so taking joy, say Gawa Gompa. Gawa Gompa. Gawa Gompa. Gawa Gompa. Gawa is joy. Gompa. Meditating on. And this is more of a practice of taking joy, not a formal meditation. Being so happy that you took the Bodhisattva vows. And Master Shanti Deva says that this cements it into your mind and sets the stage for your, bodhis- for your bodhicitta to flourish and to keep increasing after the ceremony. And just as much as it's important to purify and take on positive energy before the ceremony, you have to sit down afterwards and think about what a good thing that you just did. If you do, the mini bodhicitta you got during the ceremony will be cemented and it'll just increase. And we're, so we're doing a whole class on Gawagumpa having joy, and dwelling on the emotion of joy. Being happy after the ceremony has two parts, obviously. (laughs) Um, Being happy for yourself and making others happy. So being happy for yourself, you think about how bodhicitta is going to accomplish your own goals. And then that has three parts. (laughs) Um, The first one, say, Sang Tupa. Sang Tupa. Sang Tupa. Sang Tupa. Which means uplift your heart. And Sang Tupa isn't an ordinary word. It's an idiom where you start to get dull in your meditation. You're supposed to Sang Tupa, and it lifts you up. So to get out of the dullness in meditation, you think of something good about your practice or your life. Um, if you can't think of anything else, just sing tupa that you're human. Like the great, amazing blessing of that. And you, you just are trying to be happy and pumped up that you made a commitment to help all others for the rest of your life. And, at le- and you're thinking, at least I took this commitment. Even if the whole rest of my life was wasted and I wasn't able to do anything about it, at least I did this. And among all the human beings in America, maybe the world, I swore to live my life for other people. 
even if you do it wimpy and then you stop thinking about it a couple of days later, a couple of weeks later, at least you did that. Just making the commitment is a great thing, even if it's done in a wimpy way. Then there's a lovely verse about St. Tufa. Which goes, um, say Tengu Datse Drebu Yu. Tengu Datse Drebu Yu. Mi Sipa Lek Partob. Mi Sipa Lek Partob. Daring Sange Riksu Ki. Daring Sange Riksu Ki. Sange Sesu Dak Gyur Tu. Okay, I love this, this quote. Um, okay, so Tengu, ten, Tengdu is from this moment. Dakse is my life. Drebu Yu is fruitful. Mi is human. Sipa rebirth. Like Partob is well achieved. Daring is today, Sange Buddhas. Riksuki is their family born into. Again, Sange is Buddhas. Sesu, royal child, Dak I, Gyurtu is have become. And this is really, this is reborn in the evangelical sense. It's like from now on, from this point on, um, I took a human rebirth that now has some meaning. Now I'm a real person who's a bodhisattva. I swore I would try to help other people now. Then once you've decided to give your life to helping other people, you're part of a different family. It's like getting married and you have a new family, something like that. Now you're the son or daughter of the Buddhas which is a pretty cool family to be part of. And they say from the moment on, from that moment on, the Buddhas look at you and they have this feeling that you're special like family. And so what this means, from this moment on, my life has become fruitful. I've heard it, I think I've heard it translated, from this moment on, my life now has meaning. I've truly achieved a human rebirth, been born again. Today I've been born into the family, into the Buddha's family. Now I have become a child of the Buddha's. So I think it's really sweet. What do, what do you guys think? What's your impression? Is it um is the idea when you get baptized that you're a child of God? Is that yeah. what it is? And like all your sins and stuff have been confessed away and stuff. Yeah. Just that it cleans late a little bit. Yeah. I was baptized when I was like a teenager. <laughs> my sister 
faster. <laughs> Even though we didn't believe, you know, I never really believed too much, you know. I don't know how many, like, 13-year-olds do. You know, I don't know. Maybe they do. <laughs> I know I, I didn't when I was 13. I'm trying to think of... I had did some you, friends who were really religious. I wasn't. Did you go to church? Not really. Like, Maybe we went like once a year or something. My parents would make when we would be at their... When we were at their house. My dad and stepmom, we would have to go. <laughs> I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard like when people say they went as a kid, I never hear them say they liked it. Maybe... You know, when they get older, then they maybe choose to go. But, like, I don't ever hear anyone say, I loved going. It sounds like they try to make it fun, though. Like, there's, like, games, and, like, you get to hang out with all the other kids. And... Yeah, we never went to that. Like, oh. I could always take the kids, but then I was like, we're too old. I, I don't know, we just didn't go. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> maybe it would have been fun. <laughs> So, it, yeah, it's like, it does, it feels like it's like a brand new beginning and like a clean slate. And it's powerful taking the vows, too. You've taken yours, right? Yeah. Have you, you taken no. yours? No. Okay. It, yeah, it's really powerful and you can feel a shift. I felt, I think I felt more from taking the refuge vows, like a bigger difference uh, from like before to after. With the yeah, with the refuge vows, yeah, personally. Like, it, I felt a difference from taking the bodhisattva vows, but the refuge were, like, I don't know, more impactful feeling to me. Um, so the very best thing that we can do for others is to reach Buddhahood. And so that's what we're vowing, that's what we're vowing to do. Um, or when you're taking these vows. Because we can, we can try to help everyone in this life, just in a normal sense, but we won't even be able to help even 1% of people. We just don't, we don't have the capacity. We just can't do it. Um, does it mean that we don't try, like we don't try to feed people or help the people around us? No, it's not that we, I guess Michael uses a term, it's not that we become like an armchair bodhisattva. We're just talking about how you know, we love people so much, but we don't ever help anybody, actually. Um, but it's that we have to reach Buddhahood because then we're going to be able to emanate to whoever needs help whenever they need it, and we know what they need. As opposed to now, where, I mean, if you guys are who you seem to be, I know I am, um, totally in the dark, I have no idea. I can, like, blindly, like, try to help people in different ways and Maybe it's helpful. Maybe it pisses them off. Maybe they don't even know. You know, like, I have no idea. I'm just guessing. As opposed to when we've walked the whole path and we've gotten there, we can help people get completely out of their suffering for good, too. So that's the, that's the whole point. And it's not, if, you know, if you, it's not that you have to take the bodhisattva vows if you don't want to. Um, you don't have to do it. And also, don't, I wouldn't suggest to do it lightly. Because I will say, when I took the Bodhisattva vows, it did feel more serious than the refuge vows, too. Did you take them all at once? Yeah. 
You took them separately. Yeah. Um, so think about it carefully. And Lama Ami will be doing a vow ceremony sometime after she gets back. So if you want to take them, either these or the refuge vows, in April. But then she's leaving again. And it is back when? Mark, May? Mark said she's back in April for two weeks, and then she goes on retreat again. I think she's not coming back until July. Mm. I think that's what Mark said. So maybe it was June. So anyways, <laughs> she will be she will be doing a vow ceremony. Yeah. It could it could be in those two weeks when she's back potentially probably not but you never know. Um, but traditionally you would ask her three times, and you can um, you can send a letter to her in retreat. I've sent a letter to her where she is now. You just send it to the Tassahara. Um, is it Zen Meditation Retreat Center or something like that? Just to that address to her attention. Yes, I have the address. Yeah, it's just you can just find it if you just search Tassahara online too. What's the? Uh, I, I don't even know how to formulate this question. <laughs> you have to have taken your ref the refuge vows first. What's the? Um, Did you take? You took your refuge vows, didn't you? Yeah. It is possible to break the vows when you take them, um, which I've heard, which makes a lot more sense to me the longer I hear it. But if we were keeping everything perfectly, we wouldn't have to take any vows for it, number one. Um, and then the, the second point is that by taking them, um, every time that you're keeping them is much more powerful karmically. Um, and these vows stay with you um, past this life, too. The refuge vows don't. Um, so, yeah, there is, I mean, there is a risk of breaking them, but I'd say that the benefit far outweighs the risk, and it's not very, it's not that easy to break them. I forgot what course the Bodhisattva vows were, but seven, but there's... Um, it's hard to break them completely. You have to basically like not care about what you did and be happy about it and be willing to do it again and um, mm -hmm. not think it was wrong. You know, like the, there's a lot of things. Yeah. And a lot of them are how you treat um, monks. And so if you don't know a lot of monks, then you can't break a lot of them. So because yeah, there's like, a few you can't, of them. Like, breaking it is like if you force a monk to give up his robes or if you like don't give monks alms, or, you know, it's like stuff like that. A lot of them have to do with how you treat monks. Yeah, there's a few of them I like mean, that. I feel strongly about these, you know, but I just don't, I get, like, um, 
worried, you know, because I'm not doing, I mean, I don't think, I'm, I'm sort of doing things for my freedom vows, but not where I'm like keeping track and doing all the, you know, so I'm scared I'm going to take these and I'm not going to like keep track of things or maybe I, I mean, I do, I, maybe I have to listen to the seven. Yeah, I would uh, like uh, at least go through and like look through the, um, listen to it if you have the time for sure, and like look through the notes and um, the readings and that's and that sort of thing, and you'll get more of a sense of it. Were you not here for that course? I was, but I don't know if I was here every day. Yeah. There's like 147 vows, so it's hard to watch them all at once. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. 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 I think you'll have a clearer sense, though, of, like, what's the right thing to do if you think about it some more and look over the vows. I think I was hesitant when I took them, too. I don't think I thought I was ready to take them, but I did anyways. Um, and it was good. It was a good idea. <laughs> Sarani told me that if you're in these courses and you're interested in the subject, you've probably taken them. hard to break, then um, you can't really keep them, like, or you can't really, you know, make them stronger because you don't have the opportunity to either break or keep them. I don't know what that means. Well, <laughs> <laughs> like if you don't interact with months, yeah. you wouldn't have the opportunity to not break them. Well, you are making it stronger by not doing those things. So those are like freebies. I don't. There's not that many <laughs> for monks, but there are there are a few like for. So those are those are great because they're freebies. They're like yeah. you're not doing any of those ever, so you're getting the good karma by doing basically by doing nothing. So you're still getting. I can't remember how all of them are. Feeling to I can't remember which ones are worded in the negative and which are in the positive. I can't remember. I can't remember an example. But okay, so if you're failing, okay, it's like failing to accept an invitation mm -hmm. out of anger or laziness, I think it is which is one of them. So does it make sense that every time... You'd have to be accepting an invitation to keep that one, right? Because it's, it's one way or the other. And then the ones that are phrased positively, every time you're not doing that, you're keeping it. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I can't remember how to... I can't remember how it was explained clearly. But some of them are like freebies, like you you don't have to do anything as long as you're not doing that, you're getting the good virtue of keeping it. So I think I think look it over and just think about it a little bit. Yeah. And if you break one, then is it ten times worse than if you did? Than if you didn't do it. 
I think there's debate on it, but where what I've mostly heard is the virtue of taking them is far, far greater than any any breaking that you could do. And we're not keeping we're we're not keeping the ten non virtues perfectly at all, ever. We're breaking them all the time. Even even those like technically you know, like basic vows you could call them although they're not. So we're doing those all the time. We're going to we're going to mess up on the bodhisattva vows too, but it's not as easy actually. It's is like I think most people break the freedom vows way more than the bodhisattva vows. Those are things that are happening all the time. Mm-hmm. The bodhisattva vows, they're more like things that you're like um conscious of and you can do. It's not like, oh, shoot, I just lied and I totally forgot. I'm not supposed to do that. Oh, my gosh. Because that happened. I think that probably happens to all of us. Mm-hmm. It's not like that. The, the bodhisattva vows are different. I think they're easier to keep, actually. They're not really, but they're easier um, to be aware of. You're not going to, like, slip and, at least in my experience, you're not going to slip and, like, not even notice it and be like, oh, shoot, I just broke it. It's it's not like the flavor of them. They're different. I get the, or like the way, the sense I got from them was it was less about like, oh, here's some vows and like keep these or else. It was more like instructions. It's like if you want to become a bodhisattva, like here's what you do. Like, you know, and so to me it was more like, oh, here's a set of instructions. And then you vow to like follow these instructions rather than refraining like the 10 non-virtues is like refrain from doing these like and it was refraining and then bodhisattva vows it was more like do this and mm-hmm. or don't you know or not do this i don't know yeah it's basically like if you want to become a bodhisattva you keep these vows that's what yeah. you do because we don't know help, give, give it yeah like if don't become angry like Yeah, I think I think for us, I think they're, I think they're easier than like and the mm-hmm. um the lifetime layperson vows like, probably no intoxicants is like, the hardest vow for Westerners <laughs> to even want like be willing to take. You know, yeah. that's probably the hardest one. Yeah, so. and the bodhisattva vows don't like you said they don't come up as much as the ten. They virtues. don't. Like how often, like realistically. Do people ask me for help? And how often, like, realistically, do I get invited to something and I happen to be angry at that person? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And then would want to decline because of that, like... Or that I'm stuff, just lazy and I don't yeah, feel like going. Yeah, like, that stuff just doesn't come up as much as, like, routine killing and lying and stealing. You know? Yeah, it's like <laughs> a guide to develop our heart in a sweet way. Yeah. Because we don't know how to do it ourselves. Otherwise, we would have already done it. We've had eons of <laughs> time to do it yeah. so it's like a guide from enlightened beings like this is how you do it follow these and it'll get you there yeah yeah um okay so this is how we cultivate joy after we take our vows right that's this is yeah this, this is, is 
think about thinking about how bodhicitta is going to accomplish your own goals and it has three parts the first was it's going to uplift your heart and now the second now that you have this commitment you should wish to keep it and to keep it nicely so you think now I have to behave in a way that matches this family that I'm a part of I'm part of a family with enlightened angels and I don't want to embarrass them. So you think the new family I'm in is so holy and amazing. I don't want to do anything that's going to bring shame to this family, you know? By ever having selfish thoughts, so I'm going to try to behave like a bodhisattva. And it's, it's really, we're saying I won't be selfish, and we probably will, and we probably will totally humiliate the whole family. <laughs> We're like that embarrassing um, distant cousin or something. <laughs> but it's that we're going to try. We're really going to try. We won't be able to do it all the time. But we're vowing. We're, we're vowing to anyways. And then the third one is think about the rarity of what you've just done. That you're one in a million, at least one in a million. Maybe one in five million or ten million, who knows. And if, you, if we go outside and try to find one person who says that they've dedicated their whole life to serving other people, it's really rare. I mean... You always have to say it appears to be because we don't really know who everyone else is. If they are who they seem to be, it's extremely rare. To even take the time to come to a class where we talk about these things, much less take, take the time to do vows or take vows and keep them. And Master Shanti Deva compares it to a beggar in India who is really penniless like not what we would think of as penniless but like really penniless and they have basically the cloth around their waist and that's it and then every day they're paid um, as they're done with work and that's their their money to get food for that night and that's actually a well-paid person mm -hmm. and master Shanti Deva compares it to a beggar like that digging through the garbage, and there's not much there because there's so many other people digging through the garbage as well, so it's kind of been cleaned out. But the beggar uncovers, he sees this banana peel, and he lifts it up, and there's a huge diamond underneath it. And it's some mistake, someone accidentally threw it out. But you should think the same, overjoyed, like this beggar finding that diamond. That's what, the, um, that's what the vows are like. But it's so rare. And you can't really get it somewhere else. Like, like I was saying before, where do you see bodhisattva vow ceremonies? I mean, you just don't. It's really rare. It's not like there's a big convention at the convention center downtown and there's like millions of people lining up to take their bodhisattva vows. Like there's millions of people going to, well, not millions, but to like a concert or um, a basketball game or the Super Bowl or something like that. Like you don't, you just don't see that. 
So you have to think that you're one in maybe two million in the U.S. at least. And there's this extraordinary karma to even hear these things. And I think for us to all be here, we feel that at least when we first hear these things. You feel like this amazing good fortune, like this rarity and specialness of all of these ideas and the teachings. And so we think like that and just be really happy about it. And then of all the people in existence, it, almost nobody has bodhicitta either. So it's very rare. You've determined at this point to make every act be for others' benefit, to devote everything, to give up your whole life to try to reach enlightenment, to help others be happy. So it's the incredible rarity of getting the bodhicitta commitment. I think that's a good place to take a break. Okay. Oh, God. So we're talking about being happy for yourself, thinking about how bodhicitta is going to accomplish your own goals, and then we went over the three parts of that, which it'll uplift your heart. You want to keep them really nicely. And then you think about the rarity of what you've just done. And now, you go on to the five ways you can liberate others from suffering by having bodhicitta, which is a really amazing list. Number one, Drowe Chidak Jompa. Drowe Chidak Jompa. Drowe Chidak Jompa. Beings is Drowe, Chidak, Lord of Death, Jumpa, Destroy. You can destroy the Lord of Death for other beings. And when we say the Lord of Death, where does the Lord of Death stay? He stays inside you. It's your coming death that's the Lord of Death. He's inside you now and clawing his way out. And Jumpa means you destroy him completely. It's the condition which you're born with, um, your impending death. And there, Geshe Michael brings this up here in this class that there's this idea of Buddhism as stress reduction, um, and it's completely and totally not the point. I think all of us know that. Um, but the Buddha didn't say, I'm going to remove all of the stress in America. He said, I'm going to remove illness, rebirth, I will remove death itself. Much more radical, much more awesome. It's not just, I'm going to help you so you can cope with the shitty things that happen in your life. That's not the point of Buddhism. 
I mean, mostly we do gain those skills along the way, but that's not the point. It's to end death itself. <laughs> and if you develop real compassion or bodhicitta, you will be able to stop others people, other people's death as well as your own. And I, for me, that sentence always sounds weird, but if you reason it through in your mind, you get to the point of it. Whereas we're reaching full enlightenment so that we can help other people um, after we've gotten off the cycle of suffering, which means that we're not going to be going through the birth, suffering in life, sickness, old age, death, birth, suffering, sickness, old age, death. We're not going to be going through that cycle anymore, so we're putting an end to death. And we've done that for ourselves, and then we can show other people how we did it, and they can do it as well. And it's obvious... I think if we think about it, it's obvious that first we would have to stop our own or know how to stop our own in order to help anybody else do it. Because theoretically speaking, just isn't as powerful as when somebody's talking from experience and truly knows and can direct each person how to get there and can see what each person needs because as a Buddha you can read people's minds. You know exactly what they need, when they need it, and you're there to help them with it spontaneously. So it's, it's just hugely different when you're already at the goal yourself. The same with hearing someone who's seen emptiness describe it and someone who hasn't. It's a huge difference. And it's not that I mean, I think we all know it's not that compassion's going to stop other people's death, but it's only by developing this compassion that we're going to then become fully enlightened, stop our own death, and then we're going to teach others how to do the same thing. And it's really, it's really crazy to think about. If someone in this room, someone out of the four of us, has stopped their death, would you be able to see that? No, right. Could they even appear to die? Yes. And is it contradictory that to you they appear to die, but to themselves they don't appear to die? It's not contradictory. It takes, I think it takes a little bit more thinking about. But the reason is because objects are empty. So we have no idea so anyone else's experience except for our own. So it's not contradictory to say that someone could appear to die to us, but not to them. And that one, I think, is just good to chew on. Number two, uwa jumpa. Uwa jumpa. Ula is poverty, and jumpa is destroy. So number one, you can destroy the Lord of Death for yourself and all other beings. Number two, you can destroy material and spiritual property. 
If you get real bodhicitta or take the wish, you're taking the first step toward being able to remove the poverty of other beings physically and spiritually. You get to that state yourself, being freed of poverty, and then you teach others how to do it. Because the enlightened beings, the Buddhas, cannot take away bad deeds with a wand, the way they do that is to teach us the Dharma. And that's the only way. To do that, we have to get to Buddhahood first to be able to really do that. And this, is, um, this brings up for me a way to feel really grateful towards all of our lamas and all of our teachers because they've taught us these things. Every good thing that we have in our lives is because we were taught generosity. Probably by a lama or a teacher in a past life. Every good thing we're getting now, every time we're keeping our vows, every time we're understanding how the world's working a little bit better, every time we're treating people more kindly, it's because of the kindness of all of our teachers that they took the time to explain the teachings to us, which is the biggest gift that they can give us. So in a way, we can think that everything we have when we're doing our seven-step preliminaries in our meditation, everything we have is re really belongs to all of our lamas, all of our teachers. Without them, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know how to get any of these things. We would never have been generous. We would have never been kind. We just don't. It's not like a natural thing, mostly. So that one, I think, maybe takes a little bit of thinking about, too. And then any spiritual progress we're making on the path, it's a little easier to connect to, this is all from my teacher. They taught me all of these things. That's the only reason I know how to practice them. Nobody else has taught me these things, just my teacher, and it's brought about all of these amazing changes in my life. And so what more valuable, like what is there more valuable that you can teach anybody? So they've given us like the biggest gift that they possibly could. And then the third one, say ne jompa. Ne jompa. <coughs> ne jompa. Ne jompa. Ne is illness, jompa destroy. So you can destroy the mental afflictions and physical illness of others using the same process that we talked about before. The fourth one, say cheer duke niel jumpa. Cheer duke niel jumpa. Cheer duke niel jumpa. And this one, basically means destroy the suffering of the three lower realms, the hell all the different hells, craving spirits and animals in particular. So you eliminate the sufferings of beings and you also eliminate the two causes of those sufferings, which are, so these are basically all of, these are basically all of the sufferings that people have, that living beings have. You can eliminate all of them.
Okay, and then you also eliminate the two causes of those sufferings. Which the first one, say, Nyun Drip. Nyun Drip. Nyun Drip. Nyun Drip. And that's mental affliction obstacle. And these are obstacles which primarily prevent you from reaching nirvana and secondarily prevent you from reaching full enlightenment. And so what is the, what's the general definition of a mental affliction? Yep, a mental affliction is any thought which disturbs the peace of mind, or your peace of mind, anything. And we have to stop them because they're stopping us, they're preventing us from getting where we want to go. And it's very interesting because here are certain states in your own mind which are preventing you from getting to nirvana, firstly, and secondarily, full enlightenment or total Buddhahood. So there are states in our own mind that are preventing us. Our own mind, which we think of as like our friend or, you know, like these, these thoughts that come up, these wrong ways of seeing things that we're attached to, are the things that are preventing us from getting to where we want to go. And these obstacles are the mental afflictions themselves and also the tendency to see things as self-existent, which is the worst noon drip. to see things as self-existent, which is where all of the afflictions come from. Mm-hmm. And different schools explain Nindrip in different ways, but uh, Madhyamika, which we're studying, describes it this way. So when do you get rid of your Nindrips? When do you think? You do have to see it first, but then when you reach nirvana mm-hmm. is um, when you would get rid of your nundrips. But in order to do that, you have to see emptiness directly. So, so this would, path of habituation, you would still have mental afflictions. You would just know that the label that is. So That's that. fake. I know I'm not. I'm not getting involved in that because I've seen directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Do you automatically engage in that once you see emptiness? Because I, it's like it's just lost its juice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like. I don't know. If, I don't know. The example that comes to mind is. I hope I'm not ruining this for anybody. But like Santa Claus. <laughs> so like when you realize that something doesn't exist, which I don't know, maybe Santa does exist, but you know, if, if you think he doesn't, then there, it just has no hold over you anymore. You just you just know he doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. You know, the way he thought he you thought he did. Mm-hmm. So like before that there's you're actively attached and you're 
you know, you're thinking about Santa and what, what is he going to bring you and, you know, this and that and all these stories and you're like so excited. And then when you know he doesn't exist, it's just like, that's completely cut. There's, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking it would be similar to. It's like you'd be, your boss would be yelling, but you would have no, there'd be no delusion about it. It would just be, oh, this is from seeds I planted. I'm not going to do the same thing I did before, which would be yell back, which is planting the same crappy seed again. I don't know why I was saying that. Was that answering something? Right. Yeah. I think it's it's usually said it's like usually within seven lifetimes. But it could be in that lifetime too. Um number two say Shadrip. 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 So Shay is knowledge and drip is obstacle. And this is obstacles to total knowledge or omniscience. And when you remove these, <coughs> when you remove these obstacles, what do you become? Mm -mm. You become an enlightened being. So you've destroyed the subtlest seed for seeing things as self-existent. After you've removed your mental affliction obstacles, which occurs at the 8th bodhisattva level, or nirvana. Then you have to remove the obstacles to omniscience, which would be on bodhisattva levels 9 and 10, and destroy your subtle imprints for seeing things as self-existent, which all of us can do in this lifetime. The obstacles to knowledge and the mental afflictions they cause all suffering, sickness, and death. And by stopping them, then you stop the cause of suffering. And getting back to the whole point that we're talking about, to be just really happy that you've committed yourself to ultimate compassion. Taking joy. Ultimate compassion involves finding out what really makes people get sick and die, get old, and then stopping those things. Which I kind of think when it's put in those terms, it sounds like magical thinking unless we, unless we reason through it more. So taking joy that you'll be able to identify what's in people's hearts that is making them get sick, get old, and die and then learn to stop these things. And that's the whole point of what we're doing. Like we were saying earlier, it's not, it's not about stress management or getting a better crappy job that's just going to end anyways. Or, you know, like it's not about those things. It's about completely getting out of suffering. Never getting sick. Never dying again. 
all the all the huge huge things the catastrophes that happen in life and it's not that anything that we experience along the way is bad we can enjoy everything and you know like revel in every goodness that comes up in a different way without attachment so it's not that we have to stop we don't have to stop doing anything that we're doing we just have to have a different mindset with it. I always think of Geshe Michael talking about um, using the example of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and um, I don't, I haven't seen, I haven't seen this. I've only heard him tell the story, but I picture it this way, and like they're having, I think they're having chocolate cake at like this big banquet, and Geshe Michael's there, and His Holiness is there. And, like, he's the first one, like, to dig in. And I just, like, picture him, like, throwing food all over the place. <laughs> and he said he's, like, fully enjoying himself. But does he have attachment to it? I'm guessing no. Because I see him as an enlightened being. So it's not that you can't enjoy everything amazingly more than we do now, actually, I think. But it's just in a different way without that same gripping and like attachment of like trying to make it do something or make it turn out a certain way or make it stay or make it leave or whatever we're trying to do. And so there, that's why I think there's a book called this. Um, there's the term the blissful path to bliss. Because the path can, it can be like that. It's not that there's not struggles, but I'd almost say like the goal is for it to be that way where things are way more magical and enjoyable and lovely. I mean, we're still in suffering and we're working to get out, but as we're going along the path, it's blissful too. It's not like, slogging through this misery and then like finally one day you get some relief it's not like that it's like gets better and better and better and better as you go on and I think it's kind of hard to start and to get the ball rolling too get the ball rolling on the path or get the ball yeah and just to get like karmically get getting things rolling too because it feels like you kind of like start to gain momentum at a certain point. At least that's my sense. And it seems like some it happens for different people at different times. Some people it's like right away. Some people it takes 10 years. Some it takes 20. Some it takes like two. You know, but it mm -hmm. seems like there's a point where you're practicing enough and it's like pushing you along more. But in order to get to that point, we have to be practicing at some point. And usually it's when we don't feel like it. And I think we talk about this next week. But I love it because Geshe Michael talks about like all of the hardships and the garbage that we go through for all the crappy temporary things in our lives. And then when it's time to meditate, we're like, oh, I don't have time. I don't feel like doing it. Or it's too hard. Or like... Yeah, and then we're all of a sudden like a big wimp. Mm -hmm. And he's like, don't be wimpy about your practice. We're not, like, we go through so much crap in, like, 
relationships, at work. I mean, we get up early all the time to go to a job that's maybe really tiring. Maybe it's fulfilling once in a while. Maybe it's not. You know, like, we're just, if it's not that, it's something else. We just go through so much hardship for all of these temporary crappy things. And then when it's a spiritual practice, we're like, I don't like that. It's uncomfortable. Or, you know, like, then we're a big baby all of a sudden. So he's like, stop being a big baby and just do your practice. (laughs) We're putting up with so much crap in so many other ways. Obviously, we have the capacity to do that. We might as well apply it to something that can get us possibly a different result. So I think it's next week or maybe the week after. We'll talk about that a little bit more, too. But I really liked it. I, I, I don't think I'd really thought about it like that. Like, especially when you're... Because sometimes we're in a crappy place at work, too. Or we have, like, a bad boss. And we're going there every single day. For most the entire day in this really crappy situation. And then it's like, um, you need to meditate at least five minutes a day. No, I don't want to. I don't have to. Yeah, I don't want to. But you, you can do all the, you can un, you can endure all this stuff for all these other things. So we can we can, we have the power. We can do it for our practice. And we know the result with with the job or um, the worldly things that come up. We know we know where that path leads. We don't really know for sure where the spiritual path leads. It has a lot more potential. And even when we get just little insights, we can tell that it's really different than following the way we've lived normally. So why not um, use our ability to endure incredible (laughs) hardship towards something good? Okay, does anybody have any comments or questions? all done so I think we can end with a short meditation mm-hmm. let me see what the um, meditation is on the homework are any of you guys doing the homework sit or lay down or whatever you want to do for the meditation. thinking maybe we do the um yeah 
do the seven preliminaries not in a long way so you can see how you can go through it and it doesn't take that much time but first just quick semi quickly scanning the body and just letting yourself relax There's not any big effort to reason or logic. Think things through. the level of your forehead, a little bit in front of you, appears a golden throne, glittering lotus, sun and moon disk, and holy enlightened being your angel teacher. And they're so happy to see you. And you marvel and think of all of their amazing qualities. And just naturally, this moves you to make three prostrations. You see yourself making three prostrations at their feet. offer whatever you can imagine, a sky full of wildflowers, starlit sky, sunset or sunrise, sky full of puppies or kittens, whatever you think they'd like, your whole entire practice all the goodness in your life. Just feeling like you're completely offering everything that you can. No hesitation. And they love all the offerings. They're so excited. And you open up your heart completely transparent and confess any negativities that are weighing on you. And just by showing them these seeds are purified, you feel lighter. 
completely transparent, showing them everything, not hiding anything. They can see it anyways. You can feel the lightness, the brightness of the energy of being purified of these things and rejoicing, feeling so happy or completely free of those negativities, fully believing that. a moment rejoicing in all the goodness that you do, that you see others doing, that you see this holy being doing. beg them to stay and teach you, to stay and teach, to stay and teach. And you ask them for blessings, for realizations on the path. You think about the idea of emptiness and dedicate all of this merit to reaching full awakening in this life in order to help other beings. As you're doing this, they start to dissolve into a ball of light, a tiny golden ball of light, floats up to the crown of your head and melts into the crown, coming down the back of your body and landing at the heart center. Feel this radiant golden light filling your body. Radiates out in all directions, making offerings to enlightened beings, purifying any suffering for all others. They all fly to their Buddha paradise. This golden light melts back into your heart, slowly, slowly. this golden light still at our heart, Lauren will lead us in the closing prayers. Sashi Kuki Chukshi Metokchong Rirabushi Nyande Gampadi Sange Shingdu Mikte Uargi Shingla Chuparsho Yidam Guru Radna Mandavakam Yirya Tayami Gewa Tee